This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey, hey, welcome back to Ozpol Snack Pod, the podcast that is kind of like a potluck. We host it, but we let all our friends do the work. That's right. We are Ozpol Snack Pod, the weekly podcast that brings you bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a side helping of crispy memes. My name is Noon, and as always, is my co-host, Zach. Hey, what's up? How you doing, Noon? Yeah, good. Good. Uh, no further comment then. Good, good. Yeah. Yeah, uh, sick one. Just fucking sick. Uh, one of the reasons I'm doing good is that Carrie signed up for our, our Patreon. So thank, thank you, you Carrie, for doing that. Listeners, if you love this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Pod, and you get like access to our Discord and a monthly bonus episode and some other cool stuff. But we're also the official podcast of the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group. So if this hour of content is not enough for you and you want more election posting, head on over to Facebook slash Ospol Shitposting. Um... But we have a bit of an exciting special episode this week, Zach. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about the election for a minute because, yeah, you know... It's the only the, thing that anyone can talk about right now. It's all that's happening. And um, I don't know, I think both of us have felt a bit frustrated by, like, you know, being directed by what two completely useless chuckleheads have said. Yes. And then what a bunch of other chuckleheads have decided is important to talk about. True. Um, Yeah, it's extremely annoying, and there's no other news stories, so, like, when we go out looking for news, it's just like, Albanese stepped in dog shit last year! (laughs) (laughs) Wow! Vital content for the country. it's it's actually 2013. It was that a tweet about the dog shit resurfaced last year. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, that's the uh, the Um, quality of discourse we're on. Yeah, and especially when it comes to the two major parties, and really when we're talking about almost any other party as well, their policy platforms fucking suck, and they represent basically no meaningful opportunity for tangible change Mm -hmm. in this country at all. The whole thing is a farce and a joke. You listen to the show, you know how we feel about it. So we thought maybe we could reach out to some of our smart and interesting and thoughtful friends and ask them like hey you know a lot about this policy area what kind of policy would you like to see happening at this election instead of the bullshit ones that are actually being offered um and so so we did that yeah uh we made that decision on friday afternoon and we are recording this on sunday morning normally we we record on saturdays so it was a pretty quick last minute choice slash turnaround um yes and so thank you very much to everybody that has contributed to this episode so what we have basically is a collection of potlucks we reached out to activists experts and just punters off the street who we like and have we think have good ideas (laughs) yeah and said okay you've got five minutes your policy area is x watch what what needs to happen tell us and we got a really you know a wide range of responses to that prompt. Some people were like, here's an entire policy platform that you could launch a political party from. Some people were like, here's me going really, really deep on a specific issue. Some of them are reformists. Some of them are revolutionary. Some of them are 
both or neither. Um, it's a big spectrum of like types of suggestions. We were pretty mm. loose with our instructions, and yeah. people gave Just us a bunch of really interesting shit. With it. So yeah, which is yeah. which is amazing. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be a bit of a snack pod family potluck episode, and hopefully, you know, it's gonna be an opportunity to express a few more uh interesting and useful ideas mm -hmm. than this complete joke of an election campaign has given us the opportunity to do uh so yeah uh with that why don't we get into our first one noon great so this is uh was sent in by leah one of the hosts of loud angry and not sorry pod um who you know friend confidant member of our inner sanctum long-term supporter of the show uh, and all-round badass feminist activist. Yeah. Um, so we asked Leah, hey, if you had to put together a, a policy to do with feminism, what would it be? And this is what Leah said. For too long, the feminist movement has centred its activism on gaining access to the spaces of men, to get a seat at the table and have our voices heard. We have been granted the right to vote and no one to vote for. We've been granted the right to work for an average of 25% less than men while still taking on the majority of unpaid reproductive and domestic labour. We have been granted the right to abortion, but only within a small time frame and only at specific locations that are not religious. All of this is markedly worse when you factor in First Nations women, gender diverse people, disability, poverty and gendered violence. What we have is the illusion of progress. Small gestures of equality while the core of the patriarchal colonial system remains intact. The only real way that we can gain equity and equality within the commons is not through another awareness campaign or royal commission, but to be actively involved in the systems which govern our lives. We will no longer compromise with a system that actively benefits off of our oppression, that profits from our unpaid labour. Domestic and reproductive labour is the backbone of our economy, and yet our labour is undervalued, disrespected and grossly underfunded. These policies centre on economic reforms as a first step to liberation not just for women, but for all. First Nations sovereignty. This land has never been ceded and remains Aboriginal land. We will fight with First Nations people for sovereignty and self-determination. We will fight to implement all the recommendations brought forward by the Indigenous Justice and Custody Royal Commission and an independent investigation into the Northern Territory intervention. Superannuation equity. Superannuation is paid during maternity leave, sick leave and carer's leave. Superannuation is paid into worker superannuation accounts as per their pay schedule, not quarterly, so that the employers aren't collecting the extra interest. Superannuation for unpaid care work and reproductive labour. Access to superannuation from the age of 55. Superannuation to be paid while people are receiving welfare payments. And the government has zero access to superannuation funds. Paid parental leave, equality for both parents. Includes superannuation for both parents while they are on paid paternity leave carer payment for grandparents, taking on carer and support roles, and increased leave entitlements for the first two years of a child's life. Housing affordability and accessibility, free public housing, a housing guarantee. Uh, research shows that giving people homes is cheaper than um, homeless services, shelters, emergency department costs, and so forth. Ensure that all public housing is safe, accessible, and close to amenities. Universal childcare for all families. Free and available to all, no means testing. Incorporate maternal health clinics into the childcare centres. Childcare workers to be paid as educators. Strong action on climate. There is no climate justice without gender justice. End the use of fossil fuels and switch to renewables. 
sustainable approach to chemicals, waste and storage of waste, fund programs to transition workers in the fossil fuel industry to the renewable energy industry, increased access to healthcare, Medicare that includes dental and mental health, free access to family planning services, including birth control, abortion and aftercare, amend the hospital funding models that ensure that hospitals accepting public funds must provide family planning services and access to birth control and abortifacants. Gender-affirming surgery included in Medicare. A response to gendered domestic and family violence that is trauma-informed. Hold abusers accountable. Develop a code of conduct regarding how gendered domestic and family violence is reported in the media, implementing fines and breaches. Ability for victim survivors of sexual assault and rape to speak out about their experience without fear of legal repercussions, such as defamation. Improve reporting avenues within institutions, organisations. Alleged rapists must demonstrate the steps that they took to obtain consent. Restorative and transformative justice programs developed by academics funded by the government and rolled out into workplaces as mandatory in-person training. Male-dominated industries will be prioritised. Increased funding and access to organisations that support victim survivors so they can provide peer sessions, workshops and resources to support victim survivors. Implement all the recommendations from Respect at Work investigation. Develop an independent task force to investigate allegations of harassment, abuse and gender discrimination in the workforce. Allegations of abuse are taken seriously and alleged perpetrators must stand down from their position and an independent inquiry must take place. Findings of the inquiry must be implemented or court proceedings will take place. The understanding that presumption of innocence does not mean not guilty and steps should be taken to ensure that the victim survivor is not bullied or harassed as a result of making a claim. Economy based on sustainability for people and planet rather than growth at any cost. Welfare above the poverty line. End the cashless debit card scheme. Jobs guarantee. End franking credits. Disarm and disfund the police. Tax religious institutions. Reintroduce inheritance tax. Introduce offshore taxes specifically for mining companies who take our natural resources and send profits overseas. Fund social services which provide both support and employment for the community. Done. It's just one or two quick things there. Done. Boom. You have to imagine if we did all of that, like, this would be a much nicer and fairer country to live in. Yeah. Um, so many great ideas in there. And Leah also wanted me to add as well um, that full decriminalization of sex work should be in there. Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and also a shout out to uh, Leah, who's going to be uh, doing a, a guest spot on Dirt Radio this upcoming Tuesday at 9.30 with uh, Sam Castro. So Sick. definitely tune into that if you want to hear more badass feminist political conversation. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, this is, this is a great one to start on, right? Because it's a demonstration of how none of these issues can be approached on their own. Totally. Right? You know, and I that's mean, really one of the like big lies that like liberal parliamentary democracy tells mm. is that like, you know, we've got a minister for science, we've got a minister mm. for education and those two are completely unrelated jobs um and a minister for housing and that's got nothing to do with education and like yeah which is total fucking nonsense and it's like individualism or whatever it's like the ideological individualism but like transplanted onto government policy where each thing must be completely conceptually distinct yeah um 
which also is a way to let political parties off the hook, right? They can be like, oh, well, yeah, we're like thinking about this. We're waiting for a report. We're doing this completely inadequate policy. So never ask us about education again or whatever. Mm. And it's like, you just need one policy that you can like vaguely point at for each section. Yeah. But actually they all fundamentally inform one another. Yeah. Like, and it's very it, it, an opportunity for yeah governments to basically do one thing with one hand and then another with the other hand. Totally. Like, That's, yeah, yeah, you know, we're totally for uh, gender equality. And by the way, we're going to continue to reinforce the massive, like, housing gap in this country. Boom. Totally. They're like, no, that's not, you can't, okay. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for that, Leah. And a couple of, you know, I think there's uh, some ideas in there that will be very familiar with people, to yep. people who are like, you know, familiar with Green's policy as well, but there's some more radical stuff in there mm -hmm, as well. And mm -hmm. things that um, I hadn't ever considered before, one that p jumped out at me was um, paid uh, carer wages for grandparents who do reproductive right, right, labor right. and like look after kids. I was like, boom, great. Grandparents That's... is not in that conversation in the slightest no. at the moment. And yeah. That, yeah, I was like, yeah, damn. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for that, Leah. Um, also, one thing we wanted to mention here uh, up the, you know, and, and really at the start of Leah's uh, policy platform there you know they start with first nations justice and sovereignty yep, yep. um and that is a voice that is going to be missing from this episode which is you know really unfortunate and you know very disappointing that's our bad for like not planning this adequately and yeah uh we did reach out to some people we didn't um get any like responses in time so we haven't been able to put one out but you know Right from the very start of this show three years ago, Zach and I were like, we're very white. We're very not in touch with First Nations communities and issues. Um, and for that reason, amongst others, we wanted to have a First Nations story in every single show that we make. Um, because that's like the minimum that anyone should be talking about First Nations issues in a conversation about politics in Australia. Because the entire country is founded on the dispossession and genocide of first nations and um so we are really sorry that we didn't get a potluck about that for you this week um it's disappointing for us and we're not happy with ourselves for that but there like so many of these issues that people are going to talk about for the rest of the show are relevant and a bunch of our you know a bunch of them have mentioned how it connects with First Nations issues yeah um because as Leah makes clear none of these things exist in a silo and like any kind of meaningful radical political organizing on this stolen land needs to center First Nations people. Yep. And so many of the other potlucks do do that as well, as you say, yep. Noon. Yeah. Um, but just in brief, like I think, you know, Zach, you and I both believe strongly in handing land back to indigenous communities and nations and like abolish Australia, basically. And like, mm -hmm. that's really the starting point. Yeah. Um, but we also always try to pay attention to reports and concepts and policy proposals from indigenous people obviously um the Uluru statement from the heart is one that's sort of in discussion at the moment uh, the the idea of a voice to parliament mm. um obviously decarceration aboriginal legal service funding um all yeah. of the structures that are in place to stop indigenous people being killed in custody that are failing every single week because of seemingly deliberate choices from prison guards and so on like as yeah um yeah. an endless amount of stuff that we could be doing in this yeah. country and there's a lot of really or, like the, 
a lot of ideas that are already extremely well articulated. Totally. Like, you know, Leah mentioned the Royal Commission. Royal, yeah, like, yeah. The, the, there's a list of very actionable, easily done things that are right there to be done. Closing the gap reports. Yep, yep. Like, and, and policy suggestions. Like, that shit is all right there. You know, even when you're not talking about tearing down land the back and yeah, yeah which like should happen but you know in the immediate term there's no like there's just so many very easily done ideas that are right there yeah um but yes uh so that's something you wanted to mention up top but let's get into our next one now this one is from david kelly who people might remember uh came on the show for an interview oh, like a year ago now yeah it was during the lockdown yeah maybe even longer David is a housing policy expert and uh, a member of Rahu, the Renters and Housing Union, and all around just fucking housing policy badass. And I can't wait to play you this one from David. Hell we yeah. asked David, what would the ideal housing policy platform be? And this is what he sent us. What's the ideal housing policy platform? Well, it really depends on whether you want reform or the system to change completely. And this has been a really, really long question in the critical social sciences, political economy, however you want to phrase it. Um, you know, Frederick Engels had that very popular publication on the housing question and basically saying that the housing question is first and foremost a social question. And I think that this is something that people really fail to grasp when we talk about housing because what we talk about in housing is usually technocratic fixes like increase the supply of housing and you'll have more housing affordability which is really a massive myth that we continually get sold there are less people in need of housing than there are vacant Shit. homes so we have enough supply, we have enough houses to go around. The problem that we have is social and economic, the way we structured our system. So it really depends again on whether you want reform to a system that doesn't work or whether you want the system to change. If you were to reform the system and go for that low uh, hanging fruit, you might push for policies um, as a political party or as an independent that promote the expansion of public housing into the domain of universal access so that the eligibility criteria for public housing is basically done away with. Those who need housing get housing as a fundamental right. That would mean radically increasing the amount of stock that we have and this can be, this we don't need to build, we can simply make it untenable for people to hoard vacant homes and expropriate those homes. We can, what we need to do is maintain the current public housing stuff that we have because for decades we've been under maintaining it um, on purpose in order to drive into dereliction. We need to do this because in order for housing to be realized as this social good it needs to be decommodified so public housing is the closest thing we have currently in the current settings to decommodified housing so we need a lot more of it and we need um, universal access to it 
The second thing on our road to that sort of universal access is rent caps. So bringing in criteria which is spatial, so we rent cap particular houses, particular apartments at certain rates to say that this cannot be leased out for more than 30% of the tenant's income or you know 50% of market rates. So putting in rent caps, this is a more radical version of affordable housing as a category that the government kind of sells to us. And another thing we need to do is move towards a policy of non-eviction. So we really need to get rid of eviction from our lexicon. We need to get rid of it as a process that landlords use in order to basically turf tenants out so that they can introduce new tenants at higher rents. The, the biggest driver of rent increases or the biggest process involved in rent increases is churn of tenants. So evictions, really, we need to get rid of evictions as a policy or make it almost impossible for a landlord to evict a tenant. But if you really wanted a radical solution that fundamentally upended the system so that it worked in the favour of people, then we really need to have a serious think about whether or not our current economic system is sustainable. Does it work for us? Because, you know, for people down the bottom, it really doesn't work. Um, so housing in this more radical utopian rendering of the world would look like self-managed co-ops, tenant-managed, tenant-focused, cooperative housing that operates maybe on a kind of syndicate level um, that has that is in better relation to indigenous sovereignty that is under the framework of treaty that actually moves towards this idea of dwelling justice so not just housing but dwelling justice so this in, involves and envelops not just the house not just how you dwell in it but also your relation to the land underneath, to the, to the idea of public property, which needs to be problematized. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, before we were, before we started recording, uh, we were talking about, you know, some of the reasons why we wanted to do this episode. And I had, you know, one of the things that I found frustrating about, you know, really doing this podcast in general, but specifically during this election cycle mm. is that I feel like the, my political imagination starts to get really limited by the mainstream conversation. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you spend so long looking into liberal and labor policy, you know, or even greens like, policy, like, right. And I feel, I genuinely feel like, you know, my imagination in terms of what is possible in terms of good left-wing policy is actually kind of like it's like the greens delineate the leftmost boundary mm -hmm. for good policy in my head now your brain has become the abc vote compass <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um and this is exactly why i wanted to bring you know to to invite people to you know uh, outside the political system to talk on these issues yeah because those that stuff that david said right there it's like oh it's so it's just so refreshing and like you know Greens listeners, I love you very much, but you know, you and the one million homes policy is great. But this man just said abolish evictions. He just said expropriate all investment properties yeah, and yeah. put people in them. We don't need you know, a million new homes. We don't yeah, need a million exactly, new yeah, homes. Yeah. We've got yeah. a million homes. Yeah. 
yeah. to give out. Uh, that That's actually really true. I made a little note here because I thought it was an interesting point. Uh, sort of drops a mention of Engels, and then a few minutes later, it's like, uh, look, there's, housing isn't a material problem. The problem is a social and economic one. And I think it's a really good point there because, like, again, where, like, I think Marx's, like, fundamental insight was that humans who relate to each other through an economy pretend that, like, commodities have characteristics in and of themselves when they're actually socially determined, like price mm. or whatever. You'd be like, yep. this house is worth a million dollars. It's like, no, no, no. I'm me, the person who owns the house, is entering into a relationship with this other person where we agree to pretend that the house is worth a million dollars. And it's the same thing with, like, oh, well, we can't, like, that house is empty, but it's an eviction property. Oh, sorry, it's a, that's a funny slip. It's an <laughs> investment property. Um, so we can't, like, house someone there, obviously. And, like, that's actually not a material issue. That's an issue of people being selfish. It's a social relationship where they're like, well, I want you to sleep outside so that this house is worth more. Um, and, like, that's a social problem, not yep. an actual problem if you know what i mean oh, actual yeah. is not right the what right word anyway i just thought that was a really good point and like probably comes up a lot in the background of mainstream policy debates where like we all have to pretend that this fantasy is real yes that's exactly and you get so you caught up in those existing narratives you just kind of you know and it's like in order to even talk about what major political parties are discussing you need to buy into like that logic switch to off a, a bunch of extent. your radical yeah. brain yeah, so yeah exactly uh i also say when i was listening back to that when david uh, sent it in as soon as he name checked angles i was like noon's gonna love this shit yeah. hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> um speaking of noon loving this shit we've got another yeah. really good potluck for you this one is from our friend sam who is reads a lot of climate policy yeah and sam is also uh one of a very select group of people who listened to our first ever like demo episode before we released it like we talked into microphones for half an hour and we're like sent it to a couple of friends being like should we do a podcast like what wow i don't remember that i don't remember that we asked them to yeah well i I sent it to lou and then uh and lou and sam were driving around um i think jordan or yeah somewhere in the middle east together I okay think, maybe and uh we're like yeah this is this is pretty good you should write, write a podcast so thanks for being such a an early um adopter of yeah. the snack pod vibe sam and thank you so much for this uh potluck we asked sam to talk about uh climate policy and this is what they sent us Hello, I have some things to say about something called the coal mine waste gas method under the Emissions Reduction Fund, which I promise are interesting and important to know about. Trust me. Okay, first, some concepts. Um, Australian carbon credits, or ACCUs, are the main type of emissions offset in Australia. Each ACCU represents one tonne of greenhouse gas emissions that have allegedly been avoided, i.e. not released into the atmosphere when they otherwise would have been. Companies who avoid emissions can earn ACCUs, which are then purchased by either the clean energy regulator on behalf of the taxpayer, the federal government, or by other companies trying to offset their emissions. If you hear Angus Taylor or ScoMo talking about high integrity offsets, that's this, that's ACCUs. Um, So the clean energy regulator will only give out ACCUs for emissions reductions that are sort of created by using these special methods, which are dictated in legislation. 
There are loads of different methods. Uh, the most commonly used ones involve changing land use practices to keep more carbon in the soil or to allow reforestation or to not chop down trees that were going to be chopped down. Um, and the Emissions Reduction Fund is the mechanism through which the federal government pays for emissions reductions by buying ACCUs. Um, now, there are loads and loads and loads of problems with essentially every aspect of this scheme. I could probably start my own podcast just about this, except no one will listen to it because it would be extremely technical and extremely depressing. But I have this potluck, so here we go. Um, so the specific problem I'm going to talk about today is this like incredible scam known as the coal mine waste gas method. So coal seams contain significant amounts of greenhouse gases, mostly methane, trapped within the seam. When the coal seam is mined to get the coal out, loads of this gas is released. If the mine is underground, the gas is drained out and uh, vented because otherwise it'll explode or it'll asphyxiate people. Um, if it's an open cut mine, it's just fucking released straight up to the atmosphere. Um, so if you've ever heard people talk about fugitive emissions in relation to coal mines, uh, this is what they're talking about. It's actually a really big problem because heaps of gas is released this way and methane is a really, really strong greenhouse gas. It's way stronger than carbon dioxide, especially over like shorter time frames. And that means that it really traps heat very well in the atmosphere and has a very strong global warming effect. Um, so usually coal mines just vent waste gas straight to the atmosphere because it's the cheapest way to deal with it and obviously they don't give a fuck about the climate, they're coal mines. However, there are alternatives. First, the mine can do what's called flaring. They just set the gas on fire, just fucking light it up. Um, alternatively, they can capture the methane component of the waste gas and use it for power generation. FYI, methane, aka natural gas, aka it's in your stove. Um, so this is where our hero, the clean energy regulator, steps in with the coal mine waste gas method. This method allows coal mines to earn ACCUs by either flaring or using the coal mine waste gas instead of just venting it to the atmosphere. Now, I have several issues with the coal mine waste gas method. First, burning methane, either in a flare or to generate electricity, creates water vapor and carbon dioxide. So it still releases greenhouse gas pollution. It's also not 100% efficient, so there's still a not insignificant stream of methane still being released to the atmosphere. Second, and this is the big issue, if a coal mine uses the methane for power generation, it essentially means that the coal mine is being paid for ACCUs on top of the additional revenue it gets from not having to pay for electricity from the grid or to use some of its sales coal to generate that electricity. And because most ACCUs have historically been purchased by the clean energy regulator, that's our money being paid to coal companies to increase their own profits without making any fucking discernible impact on climate change whatsoever. So there are currently 14 projects registered with the clean energy regulator under this method, almost all of which are about electricity generation. Um, and these projects in Queensland so far have been issued with 1.1 million ACCUs, which is worth approximately $33 million at the current unit spot price of around 30 bucks. Now, this method was originally included in the legislation back in 2009 as like a transition measure, try to soften the blow of emissions reductions for coal-fired power generation. The Climate Council reviewed the method back in, 20, in 2012 and advised that it shouldn't be continued because by that stage, there was a solid market for ACCUs and coal mines could purchase ACUs to offset their emissions rather than being double paid to generate their own. However, by 2020, the supposed integrity advisor to the clean energy regulator decided that it should stay on the books. 
for really no real reason I could discern from reading its advice other than like one company, one coal company told it would probably stop capturing its waste gas if it wasn't allowed to earn money from it anymore. This is what happens when you don't have a mandatory emissions reduction target or a carbon price and it's fucking pathetic. So by this point, you may be thinking, hmm, that sounds like we're paying coal companies to keep mining coal. And that sure seems like a weird thing for our climate policy to be doing. And you know what? Yes, yes, it is. You're right. And this guy takes me the whole fucking issue with his method and with offsets generally. The system assumes that the only alternative to releasing coal mine waste gas, the only way those emissions can be avoided is by burning them or using them for power generation. And that these activities should therefore be where the public money is spent to reduce emissions. What a fucking failure of imagination. I tell you what's another real good way to avoid fugitive emissions from coal mines, stop mining coal. Redirect that money out of coal executives' pockets and towards reskilling and just transition programs for coal mine communities. What the fuck? Anyway, so that's the coal mine waste gas method, and believe it or not, it's not even the most dysfunctional method available under the literal linchpin of Australia's climate policy. There are like so many more. Maybe next time I'll talk about CCS. Wouldn't that be fun? Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks, Sam. That was great. And yes, as Zach alluded to, I used to work on coal seam gas mining um, stuff, and so I fucking love it whenever anyone is complaining <laughs> about stuff related to that. Um, so yeah, thanks, Sam. That, that was really good. And yeah, there's so much of that kind of nonsense in Australia's climate policy mm. and other policies as well, but like... Just yeah, like, well, how well, can we design not... this to have no impact whatsoever? Or like the but only like, impact is to... It's not even that. To... It's, it's been completely recuperated totally, by, totally. by capital so that any effort to, like, they like call it a fucking climate emissions like reduction policy, but it's just literally paying coal mines to do to more keep mining coal mining. Coal. Yeah, yeah, like, totally. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, this has been very well uh, articulated by people like Naomi Klein and, um, you know, that basically that capitalist uh environmental policy is or is only ever going to be like turned around and twisted in order to make more money for horrible emitting industries and like this that was a very specific breakdown of one like narrow slice of policy but as you say known it's indicative of yeah, and as attitude. Sam said, it's like there's that's not the worst thing on the books <laughs> in this thing. one fucking industry. It's like just one that they happen to be extra concerned about at the moment. But Sam, I reckon there, you know, people would listen to that show. There's um, yeah, agreed. Yeah, people worried about coal seam gas literally across the entire world. But like, just send us a potluck every week, and we'll play. It'll be a little 100%. Sam CSG corner, you know, yeah. like hit if us. If you want to hear more Sam, listen. Um, send us a DM. And, yeah, and uh, then we'll tell them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, badass cuties, we've got another potluck here. I well, feel what? like I feel like this probably doesn't need um, that much introduction. We reached out to a friend to talk about fascism in this country, and I think you can probably guess who we spoke to. Peter Dutton. Yeah, g'day, it's your boy Tom Tanagy here, a fringe political Pokemon hunter, and I'm responding to the question from the angels of Ospol Snackpod of what to do, or what kind of policies we'd like to see about far-right extremism from, from politicians, which is a good question. Um, first of all, I'd probably defer to the much more legendary and knowledgeable than I, Slack Bastard, who's often said and made the case that 
um, something that's stymied grassroots far-right political movements and formations in Australia has been the very fact that we do quite a few things here that are a fascist sweat dream. I, I, I would particularly posit among those, um, you know, our offshore internment camps for refugees, making us a kind of a, you know, an isolationist garrison state. You know, don't take it from me, take it from Australia's leading fascists. They've often said um, that they regard it as a really good fascist policy. I've heard that come out of their mouths before. Um, so I think what I really first and foremost expect from a politician or a political party is to fight back against that stuff. You know, and the things that come out of the legislature that uh, enshrine far-right policy. Because all that really happens from there is that in the climate that grassroots far-right movements and the media play hand-in-hand hand with, you know, we see this dance that we saw with the, the formation of the Patriot Movement in the late 2010s, uh, in which, you know, Murdoch media, and this has been studied as being, you know, demonstrably true, that, you know, Murdoch media will create a reactionary fervour over, say, you know, African gangs or Muslims, and then grassroots far-right movements will only really dance around in the space left for them by the media. They only dance to the tune by them, you know. So the press will do the the reactionary, you know, minority baiting, and then uh, the far-right political movement will make the rallies out of it and the like. So the space in that for, for the politicians, though, is will look no further than the fact that that patriot movement locally only began, you know, of the 2015-2016 in the vacuum left by Tony Abbott, who was really talking that kind of game when he was there in, you know, at the, at the head of the state. Once he was gone, the vacuum was filled by, um, you know, quite visibly by a far-right movement that rushed in to fill the space that he had created. So I want politicians to not create that space that will then be filled with the future extremists, you know. I want them to fight back against our increasingly militarised and, you know, deaths in custody prone police force and, of course, as I said, our offshore internment camps. But I think beyond that, to recognise that... Um, that you can't just legislate. You really can't legislate that kind of extremism into and out of existence per se. You can't get rid of it once it's there by making laws simply to ban a swastika or what have you, in my opinion. You know, and I don't think I really need or that we really need as a society to see that from pollies. We don't need to see them saying, oh, okay, here's, you know, the National Socialist Network doing walks in the Grampians, let's now ban the swastika. Any commentator telling you that that's the answer to those movements doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, those populist movements need to be faced back popularly. Maybe that's just the anarchist in me speaking. I don't know. But I have a very strong gut feeling that you cannot simply make laws to deal with populist grassroots movements that start to become extremist and far-right in nature. You need a strong block of society steering that down collectively. So what I want from politicians is to deal with the political side of stuff. Look at the most far-right elements of laws that, that you know, fulfil those fascist sweat dreams and fight them. And then when it comes to the matter of grassroots far-right extremism, back people up, you know, back the movements up that stare them down. 
I see too many times from politicians, I see this separation between what they might call the far left, you know, elements of the activist left that they don't want to be seen with. Um, you know, those activist elements doing the heavy lifting, well, they do bugger all, you know, and sit there and talk about banning swastikas. Well, get out there on the street and support those movements that are really facing the danger against, you know, elements of far-right extremisms that are, that are actually staring them down. That's what I want to see from these people, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really good and, like, kind of ties into what I was saying about housing, I guess, sort of a slightly different angle, but, like, Tom was basically saying, like, politicians can't do this through legislative means, mm. but they're very important public figures who affect the mood and the mm. discourse of the mm. country. And, like, Tony Abbott was a master of it in terms of, like, shifting the Overton window or something along those lines. Like, he was such an ideological warrior that he could say these horrible things that for anyone else would be a dead cat kind of, like, deliberate distraction. But for him, it was just like, oh, no, you shouldn't get to see a GP. Like, no. <laughs> um, and, all, like, all of the anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, anti-Black stuff that he was promoting that then rolled on through the Victorian election. And, like, mm. the, the impact... Like, I think politicians have this double think about their influence on society. Like on the one hand, they're like, Oh, yeah. I'm just like a faceless public servant. I've been selected to make the country a better place. And, and I'll do that through voting or whatever. And then on the other hand, they're like, no, I want to be a leader. I'm a, in, I represent the community. I have a mandate and so on. And when you position yourself like that, you have a responsibility because your words have an impact. And mm. anyway, I, I think that's a really good point from Tom that like, actually what it needs is a community dedicated to fighting fascists like yeah. that's that's the policy yeah and like the job of politicians is to back those people up and we yes, have so absolutely. fucking few yeah. politicians willing to do that like one of the few that i feel like i could name is lydia thorpe who like totally you will see at rallies yelling at cops yep. Yep. which is something that we need to see more politicians doing <laughs> totally totally because cops are fundamentally anti human they're mm -hmm, anti mm -hmm. the population and as a politician it's your job to advocate for the population so you should be yelling at cops mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. like yeah that's uh, like i think that tom makes a great point that's really one of the best and most effective things <laughs> that a politician could do when it comes to suppressing right-wing extremism aside from you know voting down actively fascist policies sure yeah which are wholeheartedly endorsed by both major parties currently mm -hmm. do not fucking talk to me about Christina Keneally's shit this week. My goodness. Awful. But like, yeah, like, don't be like, oh, it's both sides, you know, violence is banned. Shut the fuck up. Get on the front line, yell at some cops, give the finger to a fascist. Like, that's what you should be doing as a representative uh -huh. Uh -huh. of the country. Yeah. Actual humans. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thanks, Tom. What All a legend. Right. For real. What can you say? <clears throat> Tom Tanneke. Keep hunting those Pokemons, my friend. I, and let me just, while we're here, you know, in, it's a snack pod family potluck, so it, excuse, excuse me for getting a little bit sentimental here, but one thing I, you know, I've always really appreciated about Tom is that, you know, I mean, he's been doing this, this stuff, like indie media stuff, a lot longer than us. Yep. He has always made time for us. Every it's time true. we've reached out, not just to come on the show or, um, you know, to help out, but like for advice about how yeah, to handle yeah. stuff. Tommy's I know you've contacted him a few times for like thoughts about stories about anti-fascism and stuff. And like, he's yeah. just always there to like, or just like, you know, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, Z activist 
thing right, right. in my spare time. Do you know about this? Tom, and, you know, and like he'll he'll always make time. Um, so I really appreciate that. And like, you know, Tom's response about the best, you know, form of uh, defense against fashions and being a strong community. He really embodies that. He does. He lives it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I appreciate so much. Someone else who does a lot of amazing community building work is our next potlucker Tilda who was on the show a month or two ago and we got a lot of really good feedback about her yeah, performance that's a our popular episode most downloaded episode ever yeah and of course that was the conversation that spawned the Ospol shit posting worst person competition <laughs> talking about Philip Ruddick and Tilda is on the radio regularly she streams on Twitch regularly uh, Final Fantasy and other things um, and like and hangs out on my streams. Another lovely member of our community who's also very intelligent and knows a bunch of shit that they talk about on a yep. regular basis. Uh, Tilda recorded this potluck there in a motel room in Perth, which um, is haunted. So if you hear ghosts in the background of this recording, it's, it's just nothing to worry about. Hotel I, room. Yeah, I think they're mostly friendly ghosts. We asked uh, Tilda to talk about, you know, what would they would like to see in a queer uh, political policy platform, and uh, this is what they told us. Hey there, Snackers. Tilda here. Um, thanks so much for asking me to chip into the show. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about policy as it affects the trans and gender diverse community. Um, first thing I want to talk about is the right to paid and ongoing gender affirmation leave. Um, we've got some NTEU comrades out of the University of Sydney. Um, they've been on strike earlier this week. And one of their demands was a right to 30 days of gender affirmation leave. And that is an ongoing, um, you know, topped up amount of, of leave. Um, this includes leave that you can use to take care of anything transition related, whether that's legal, financial, medical, social, um, all of those ways in which trans people need to transition. Um, this leave is designed to cover that. Um, the UCID management have responded with an offer of 30 days once off across your entire career, you get 30 days to transition. Um, and I think we need to discuss why that is grossly inadequate. So the reason that NTU comrades have put forward um, a claim of 30 days of leave is because that's really the barest minimum of time that a worker would need to recover from pretty much the most invasive um, gender affirmation surgeries, which um, is probably um, female, uh, sorry, male to female um, genital reconstructive surgery. In a lot of states, um, in order to change your birth certificate and that kind of thing, you need to have um, that kind of surgery. So it's a pretty desirable thing for a lot of trans people. Plus, you know, you come out of it and you have a pussy, that's pretty good. A lot of people want this kind of surgery. Um, depending on the kind of surgery you need done, um, this can kind of happen over multiple operations. Um, they can be spread out over months or years. Um, and then there might be other procedures that you want to have as part of your transition, such as facial feminization surgery or um, other, other kind of surgeries like this. So 30 days leave across your entire career, that's, that's never going to cut it. And um, caps on the accrual of leave in general, you know, like a lot of places will force you to take annual leave if you've got too much or they will only um, replenish your sick leave up to a certain point kind of thing. Um, that leaves many trans workers very, very vulnerable because when you do go to, you know, take a big stretch of leave to take care of your surgery, that's it. You've got no holidays. You've got no sick pay. Um, if you get something like the novel coronavirus or something, you're kind of fucked. Um, and this really means that a lot of trans people end up unemployed when they go to, you know, look for this kind of 
healthcare, um, and that's a big problem for our community. Um, so what policy would I change to deal with this? Um, I'm not, wouldn't ask for the government to enshrine um, gender transition leave, you know, uh, as, you know, like, like a law or anything like that. Um, what I would change is I would give the workers the right to strike because um, there's a lot going on here. Leave policies, if, even if um, our comrades at the NTU get everything they ask for, leave doesn't apply to casuals, hey. It only applies to people with stable, ongoing commitments to work. Um, so we've got a lot to win across every industry and we need the right to withhold our labour and demand everything we want, transition leave, all the other good things in life. If we're going to get that anytime soon, we need to be able to strike. So that's, that's what I would change. Um, the other policy I would... Um, want to talk about here is around um, transition related care um, again healthcare kind of stuff and um, bringing it onto medicare um, because being trans is really fucking expensive so a few simple things um, many common hrt medications are just not on the pbs that's really low-hanging fruit you know like that just needs to be kind of reviewed and expanded a bit particularly this is a problem i've noticed for um, trans masculine people non-binary people who take testosterone the availability and the cost of medication can be really prohibitive so that needs to be addressed we should be paying like seven bucks max for hormones but often it is far more expensive than that because things are not put on the pbs so we need to address that um, but the big ticket stuff here I'd like to talk about is surgery. And I'm going to share a bit of my personal experience. I am a trans woman. I am seeking both bottom surgery and facial surgery. Um, for the kind of facial surgery that I want, I need a maxilla cranial specialist, which is someone who works with um, bones and, and jaw structures and chins and things like that. There's only three of them in the country who do this kind of um, surgery uh, in my in my research. Uh, last year when I was looking into it, one of them had just retired. So now there's two. Um, of the other two, one of them has had some, I won't go into the details, but kind of bad reviews and had the, have the guy who just retired, he had to kind of fix up his mistakes, you know. So that's not something you want happening to your face. Um, so I'm not very keen on that surgeon. The one remaining, um, I have no information about them except for a Reddit thread from 2017. You know, five years ago in 2017, he was charging about 16 grand for the kind of thing that I was after. And a few girls said that he was pretty good. So, I've, you know, I started chasing him up. I had a $400 phone call with him and he sent me back a quote of $40,000. Um, so, you know, prices are really, really exorbitant and they've gone up in the last five years. That And that is house deposit kind of money. If I had $40,000, I could probably get a mortgage, you know. I don't have $40,000, it turns out. Um, so I was pretty dejected about that. And I started, okay, well, maybe I'll start looking into bottom surgery first. I was able to get a consultation with kind of the main guy in Australia. Everyone knows he's the, the best guy. I was put on a 12-month waiting list for a consultation. Um, and six months into that waiting list, he has just recently announced that he too is retiring um, so his understudy is taking on appointments, but his understudy at this point is refusing to do full cavity reconstruction. Um, so that's that's not what I'm after. Um, and he is, will only reconsider his position um, in April 2023. He's going to reconsider whether he'll start doing the full um, genital reconstruction surgery at that point. Um, the quotes for, I've received for that um, procedure are about $25,000. Still, you know, really difficult to access so my options today, as things stand, um, to pursue surgery, um, a lot of them lie overseas. I could travel to Spain or Brazil to um, meet with you know the surgeons who've worked on Chelsea Manning's face. 
they could um, do my facial surgery for about 50 or 60 grand and I'd have to stay um, for a while in, in Europe or South America. Um, another option is to travel to Thailand or Mexico. I could probably spend half of that amount, um, but there is a heightened risk of complications and that kind of thing. I do have a friend who has had a bot botched surgery in Thailand and that's a really bad situation to be in. There's really no recourse for when that kind of thing happens. Um, so, you know, my, my preference would be to do it here in Melbourne, Australia um, and recover at home, you know, with, with my friends around me and that kind of thing. Um, I don't need to explain to you or the listeners, um, trans people are generally really fucking poor. We're very precarious. A lot of us are long-term unemployed. And as a community, we're disproportionately disabled. Um, we're not wealthy by and large. Um, and the vast sums of money um, that we're looking at to get access to this kind of healthcare, as well as the dearth of practitioners at the moment, it means that essential and in many cases, life-saving surgeries are well out of the grasp of so many trans people. Um, so the policy, we need all transition-related healthcare to be made part of Medicare. And we need to seriously address the skill shortage here, which is part of you know making it more viable to have um, surgeries in Australia to increase the demand, mean that people aren't going overseas to access these surgeries. We need it on Medicare now because um, the situation, we're just kind of relying on three or four aging white dudes um, who, if they're not getting ready to retire, they are absolutely gouging us for every cent um, and it's not working. So yeah, that's th those are the things I would um, really love to see. Um, thanks for listening, boys. Fuck private healthcare, crunch, crunch. Thanks, Zelda. That was really good and comprehensive, and I think also really tied into, you know, what we keep saying that like these sectors are not distinct. And I thought it was really interesting that one of the things that they identified just right off top was like the right to strike, and like that's yeah. not obviously a queer issue, I think, for a lot of people. But I think Tilda argued very convincingly for that why it, it has to be yeah. seen as one, totally. and I think that's sort of the message that we're going to keep finding in these potlucks from people that like, yeah, like I'm queer and I need to stand in solidarity with my community or like, yeah, I, I'm an anti-fascist and that means I need to like support refugee led activism. And it's like all of yeah. these things that like overlap. You know, casual <clears throat> and precarious work is like, right. obviously a queer issue as well. Like, totally, you know, totally. that all these things kind of, yeah, intersect. Um, yeah, thanks so much for that, Tilda, and for um, sharing your story, uh, your journey with that as well. It's, like, so illustrative of totally. what the impacts of these, like, you know, shitty policy positions yep. are. Yep. Real, real reminder of, like, you know, all of these bullshit decisions have a very direct human cost, mm -hmm. right? Um, and all of these good ideas would have a really direct human benefit. Benefit, like, yep. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks heaps, Tilda. Uh, and now we've got uh, one from Jez Haywood from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, which is very exciting. We asked Jez to talk to us a little bit about what the ideal policy platform would be around welfare. Uh, and this is what Jez sent in. I'm Jez Haywood. I'm the Vice President of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. We uh, advocate for and support welfare recipients um, dealing with the government and we call, we advocate for better conditions for unemployed people. In the lead up to the election, we released an election scorecard that, uh, that covers 
most of what we want or what we're advocating for for unemployed people in Australia. The first item on our election scorecard is welfare payments at the poverty line. Um, at the moment, the current Henderson poverty line is $88 a day. Mm. That's gone up since the start of the pandemic from $80 a day. We think it's the bare minimum that people who are out of work should be receiving. When the coronavirus supplement came in, it was the first time welfare recipients in Australia had ever been above the poverty line. And we, you know, heard a lot of stuff from our members about how they were able to look after themselves properly for the first time. They were able to pay rent, they were able to, you know, eat properly, they were able to afford their medicines. They were able to set themselves up in a much better way to uh, actually prepare themselves for looking for work. So we won't accept anything less than $88 a day. Our second point on our election scorecard was the, the abolishment of mutual obligations. The mutual obligations system as it stands is punishing, it's, you know, anxiety inducing, it's way too onerous, it is, it's not fair. It's just from top to bottom a horrible system. We are we're absolutely all for abolishing all mutual obligations. Also we're for abolishing work for the doll. Welfare recipients are paid 40 cents an hour for work for the doll, and they're not covered by work cover. In the case of Josh Park Fing six years ago, someone, you know, people have been seriously injured and Josh Park Fing died on the work for the doll site due to lack of oversight and safety measures. It's, it's as close to slave labour as you're going to get. Another thing that we want abolish. <laughs> the word abolish does come up in our uh, platform quite a bit. Um, the next thing we want abolished is the cashless welfare system, the Indu card or any type of forced income management where welfare recipients get a certain amount of their payment quarantined on a card that is only available in certain places. Um, means testing is another thing that we want to see removed. Um, the partner income test, the liquid assets test, there are many, many hoops that you have to jump through. They're just cruel and punitive. The, uh, the partner income test is particularly bad when it comes to issues of domestic violence and women um, because, you know, how can, how can someone leave their, their abusive partner if they're not getting any independent income because their partner earns too much? It's just, it's just another horrible, horrible uh, imposition on people and we want to get rid of it. We also want to see um, employment services brought back into public hands. The current um, job service provider system is just a funnel for government money to go into private pockets. And there is massive, massive amounts of evidence that suggests that these kinds of providers don't actually help people find jobs. And it's just another level of bureaucratic nonsense that, you know, an unemployed person doesn't need. We need a public employment service that will help people actually find jobs, not punish them. We're also calling for a Royal Commission into robot, which kind of speaks for itself. The government lost a class action. The whole system was flawed from top to bottom. We're sick of seeing big companies avoid tax and the government try to claw back revenue from unemployed people. The last two on our election scorecard are more general, but they feed into issues faced by welfare recipients. The first is guaranteed public housing. There's a homelessness crisis in this country, especially in women over 50 years of age. There's not enough rentals. 
we just need to sort it out once and for all, remove the profit motive, just get the government building public houses. And the last point on our election scorecard is mental health and dental care on Medicare. It seems absurd that you know, Medicare stops basically at the top of your neck. There are lots of mental health issues that come with being unemployed, especially long-term unemployed. Like, it seems an absolute no-brainer that mental health and dental care should be on Medicare. All right, I think that's it. Thanks, Heaps, Jez. Um, I mean, you know, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has been doing very solid activism around this stuff for ages. They have this extremely uh, well-articulated policy platform that, again, you know, you listen to that and you're like, yeah, we should just do all that stuff because that would make life better for many, many people. Yeah. Um, but also listening really to liked that. Medicare ends at the top of your neck. That's a great. Yeah, that's a great I was line. like, yeah. Jez, is that an original Jez line? Because um, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to steal that one. Yeah. Um, also listening to that, I was just reflecting, you know, uh, a number of those policies in there were Leah mentioned up top as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, Jez kind of makes the point that a lot of these housing issues do specifically disproportionately affect women. So, of course, housing is a feminist issue. Uh, health is, uh, you know, is a, health is an issue that obviously massively affects, like, the, the conversations around social welfare as well, like these things, again, all massively interconnected. That's just a really easily implementable policy program that would, like, just massively improve the quality of life for, like, yeah. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in this country. Absolutely, yeah. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, up next. We've got JB, another uh, favourite guest on the show. JB came on the show a little while ago to talk about decriminalising sex work, um, which was another huge episode that people loved. Uh, well, sorry, we still haven't got them back for part two of that interview. We're still planning happen. on doing that. It will happen. It's um, going to happen. But luckily, you got a little um, sprinkling of JB coming up a little up JB right to, to tide you over. This time, they're talking about something different. Check it out. Hi there, SnackPod. It's JB here. I have a lot of different takes and thoughts on uh, policing and police abolition, but today I'm going to specifically talk about the framing of police as... Uh, emergency services personnel. So uh, the way that police are legally defined in a lot of uh, a lot of cases as emergency services personnel puts them in the same category as paramedics, firefighters, SES uh, and flying doctor staff. Um, I think that this is incorrect because the police's role is incredibly different than all of those other roles, mm. all of which exist. Uh, primarily to protect and treat uh, ill, sick, wounded, injured people or to remove them from dangerous situations, whereas the police's role, as we know, is to criminalise those people. Uh, and I think also that it leads to situations in which other members of actual emergency services are encouraged to identify with police. It encourages like a cop mentality amongst people like paramedics and SES uh, volunteers um, and encourages collusion between those groups rather than uh, people such as paramedics recognising that in a lot of cases, particularly in the case of uh, mental health 
uh, episodes for people uh, or in terms of the treatment of Indigenous people and other racialized or criminalized groups, uh, the interest of providing the best possible care to the patient is actually directly in opposition to uh, the goal of the police, which is often to arrest and criminalize those people. Um, there's also offences on the books in a lot of places, uh, such as willful obstruction of emergency services, uh, which were fought for pretty hard by AMBO unions in particular. Um, paramedics are the people in Australia, the, the, the job in Australia that is most often assaulted and abused on the job. So those laws were put in place and campaigned for hard by ambulance workers and the AMBO unions uh, to protect paramedics from the assaults and abuse that they experience on the job. Police, by uh, encouraging the framing of emergency services workers as uh, as encompassing themselves as well as paramedics and firefighters, etc., mean that they're able to charge people who, for example, uh, blockade a police car to stop uh, a police action or to de-arrest somebody at a protest and uh, similar things like that uh, can charge people with the same offence as they would be charged with if they, for example, attempted to prevent an ambulance or a fire truck from getting to or leaving its destination, which puts people's lives and safety in immediate risk. Uh, whereas a lot of the time, preventing a police car from arriving at or leaving a location uh, is actually in service of the protection of people's lives and safety. Um, So I think that this is a really particular um, example of really bad framing. Um, It encourages, yeah, cop mentality among actual emergency services personnel. Uh, It discourages um, the critical kind of thinking about what actually is better for the patient or for the person who is in distress that those emergency services might be helping. Uh, And it allows police to frame themselves as the kind of heroes that people like fire rescue and SES and paramedics often actually are because those people save lives. Yeah. Such a good point about the difference between obstructing an ambulance and obstructing a cop car. Those are yeah, opposite yeah. things. Yep, totally. Shouldn't be the same law. I also think, uh, you know, one thing that we were sort of hoping to get some content about that I didn't think came out a lot, though this is related, is um, about, like, devolution of police services, quote-unquote mm. services. So, you know, like, the fact that, you know, people often say, like, the people who deal with domestic violence should not be the same people who have to deal with, like, drunk dickheads in the CBD on a Saturday night, because those are very different situations. And they should all be different from the people who are doing crime scene forensics and so on. And that, like, actually having those be in different institutions would be really helpful in terms of limiting their ability to do harm. And I think this is a sort of one... uh, an example of, like, one way in which we could devolve the police Mm. from um, their current arrangement. And, like, no, they are not emergency services 98% of the time. Um, And, like, when they are, they normally do make things worse. Like, I'm just thinking about, what's his name, Gargasoulis in Burke Street or whatever, that, like, the cops who were... Like, when they needed to get their car somewhere quickly, instead did the opposite. Yeah. But, like, when there's a homeless person having a psychotic episode, like, you better believe the lights and sirens are on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, I just thought that was a really good point. And, you know, listener, if you have thoughts about devolution of police into different silos, you know, fucking send us a potluck next week. That'd be great. We'd love that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, there's also a little bit of a theme here um, connecting to something that you've pointed out a couple of times, Noon, the difference between, like, the material and then the maybe, like, you know, I- idealistic... Social or yeah, cultural... Yeah. Uh, impacts of, like, particular, yeah, pieces of policy and, and you know, JB sort of positions this really as a matter of, a matter of framing and it's not obviously just for the cops, but it's, you know, it's the way that right, the community, right. community perceives them. And that the Ambos perceive themselves or whatever. Yeah, totally. Yeah. People who help, like fireys and paramedics and also cops mm, i yeah. guess technically they're the same phone number so yeah must anyway be, yeah uh cancel paw patrol stop giving cops free coffees baristas yeah what stop the, doing it d- d- fucking god damn it <laughs> there's nothing about them nothing about cops doesn't irritate me walking into a, into a place and expecting free fish and chips fuck you shut the you know, fuck up you're not, a, Something... you're not a paramedic. You wish you were. You wish you were useful. You yep. free chip, free latte motherfucker. Okay, let's move on. You know what might help with the public, um, uh, you know, misunderstanding about the nature of police and other emergency services if we had a, a, a better media landscape. Damn, I wish we had asked somebody to talk about that. Oh, well. Oh, my God, we did. We oh, my a, gosh. We, we, we got a potluck from Tom McLean. From not good enough, uh, pour one out for our fallen friends over there. Great podcast, great people. Uh, we reached out, asked if any of them wanted to to say something about uh, media, and Tom very kindly jumped in and sent us this. G'day, everyone. It's Tom McLean here from Not Good Enough, and I am running for office. And if elected, will become the minister for the media. I guess that's my position of expertise, at least. So I'm going to bring you two major policy ideas. One of them is very boring and uncontroversial. The other one is a bit bolder, a bit more visionary, a bit more transformative, maybe a bit sillier, but I still do believe in it. So the first one is uh, just <laughs> refund the ABC. Just restore... Funding to the ABC. It's It's been bled dry over the last you know, couple, many years, and uh, I think that we can just figure out all the money that we should have given it in that time uh, and give it to them uh, immediately and then keep giving them that money and, I don't know, triple their budget while we're at it. Like, we, we erred on the side of not giving them enough money uh, for a while. You know, that experiment's done, uh, turned out shit, so let's err on the other side. Um, I, I really think that like when you look at the media landscape in Australia, there's a lot of pretty, you know, bleak observations that you can make the sort of prominence of the Murdoch press and all of the, you know, the, 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 the mainstream media like that, 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 um, you know, has these horrible stances, you got like free climate denial and every, uh, bloody wavelength, all the racism, anti-poor, you know, like all that shit. I, I think that restoring funding to the ABC would be more effective at sucking oxygen out of that space uh, than uh, any kind of, you know, uh, uh, censorship, you know, fact-checked legislation. Like, I think that any of that stuff is going to be pretty easy to run circles about. But if <laughs> if all of the people that you'd be like, all right, we need to hire a horrible little clickbait goblin that we can underpay to churn out uh, article after article about why we shouldn't uh, fund job JobKeeper, and if they refuse to do it, then we just put them back on the street and hire somebody else. Like, if everybody who is in that field can opt into stable and secure work uh, at the state broadcaster that has, you know, sick leave and, and, and fair pay, like... <laughs> I think that's going to clean up a lot of the mess just for free and we would get 
good quality media uh, out of it. Um, and it, it focus that on the regions as well. Like put, you know, performance uh, metrics on that to say, you know, we need X reporters per thousand people divided by town so that we build back up that support for local news. People get news that's actually relevant to their communities. And, you know, we live in a time of crisis when disaster strikes. We will have people on the ground when shit goes down, which we, we're we sorely lacking in at the moment, and I think that's really critical. I think as a secondary point to this, it'd be useful to get a sort of working definition of bias into legislation somewhere. Uh, not anything with teeth, I'm just saying something that just gives us some frame of reference, because there's a lot of accusations of bias flowing around, and I think that being able to point to a thing that says, look, we've got one sort of category that says this person, as well as having their opinion, is also making money off it if you believe that opinion. And that's like one kind of bias. And then we've got another kind of bias. It's like this person, their dad invented blah, blah, blah. And so that's, you know, they've got like a familial or, or, or you know, matrimonial connection to it or something like that. And then we've got a third kind of bias, which is the one that is just like, yeah, the person consistently likes a thing. And so they consistently report on it favorably because they like it. I had a friend recommend to me like a, 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 a the Doctor Strange movie and they were like, oh, I'm biased though. I like the Marvel movies. That's like, <laughs> you're biased to what, like the things that you like? That, it's ridiculous. But like the ABC is a national broadcaster. The, the risk, the bias risk of a national broadcaster is that it becomes a government mouthpiece because it's dependent on that government for funding. Which which means you you don't need to put bias gu- safeguards in both directions. Any safeguards around neut- neutrality need to be centered on ensuring that that broadcast can can remain critical of the government. The safeguards in the other direction to, to, to prevent it from getting too critical of the government, simply they don't need to exist. It's money comes from the government. It's going to be naturally inclined to be nice. The direction of that funding means that it will gravitate in that direction by itself. <coughs> the, like the only reason that you need to put a net above the trapeze is if you plan on dropping it to catch the acrobats, right? It's, it's yeah, it, it, the, the ABC bias is a, is a fake idea. Side rant. My second and sillier policy is that we defund the military in order to fund a jobs guarantee for poets. Because I think any cultural output that we have is going to be a better national security asset than any invisible submarines. And I believe that's my time. I love you very much. Good night. Wow. <laughs> uh... Fuck yeah, jobs guarantees for poets. I think that I, hell yeah. Damn Skippy. (laughs) I think Tom makes a great point about like jobs for journalists and making more jobs not at Murdoch Press available to young journalists is a good idea. You know, you and I have had this conversation or a similar conversation a couple times in relation to the show. Like we've had other podcasts ask to like come on or for us to go on their show mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's been times when i've been like well these people kind of, they work for they work you know, for channel seven or whatever yeah, like- they work for channel seven or the or murdoch or whatever and, and i really think that this little you know project that we do in our own time we need to like accommodate them like they can just do their own thing and you know not to make you sound like the great unwashed here or anything new, but you were like, oh, I rarely you wash. <laughs> You're like, oh, but like, you know, they're just, they're journalists. They, they want to work. That's where the job was. They took it. Doesn't make them a bad person or their opinions, you know, right, necessarily right, right. fucking horrible. Whatever. We could debate that till the cows come home, but it's like you, yeah. By like actually giving them other options. Like, yeah, that will make a real impact. Yeah. yeah and yeah. you don't, you don't have to look very far. Like you look at, you know, the people who, 
you know, who, like the editor of The Guardian is ex-Murdoch. You know, their lead political correspondent is ex-Murdoch. Patricia Carvelis at the ABC is ex-Murdoch. You know, like... Philip Adams is ex-Murdoch for it, some the, reason. Like yeah. a bunch of people that we went yeah. to school with who are now journalists doing great work are ex-Murdoch. Like, that is where the jobs are. And, mm. you know, you know, I don't want to make a value judgment on these people's character or whatever. It's not what I'm trying to get into. My point is I think that Tom's suggestion, Ari, yeah. Yeah. much, much, much more money for the ABC is a good one. You and I, Noon, have many problems with the ABC. We've articulated these over the years. I think that... But they're still by far the least bad major media source. And I think they also easily. have the most, like upside potential in terms of like the like there's no chance exactly. that the australian is ever going to be a good newspaper oh. abc could do good reporting yeah and i think you know the look at their entire output i haven't crunched the numbers here but let's say theoretically they put out you know roughly 10 percent of their output is like good and stuff that we like and we just massively expand the abc sure there's going to be a whole bunch more centrist nonsense that you and i are going to ignore on a weekly basis but also there'll be that much 10 percent is bigger yeah it's gonna it, that's gonna trickle represent, down yeah, journalism yeah. you know because they are one of the few places that will give you know that, that like will make interesting tv you know yeah, and will yeah. uh, like give creative money to first nations people who want to make you know, content, for example, like there's, you know, just again, on the point about the jobs guarantee for poets, I think like, you know, I've mentioned before about Philip Adams, in fact, um, uh, and, and the tax rebate it was like 150% tax rebate for films yes. being made in Australia yeah, and catering days. Yeah, exactly. And, um, that like, obviously the Coke and catering, maybe like not exactly what we're trying to fund, but it meant that Australia had this vibrant, like entertainment film industry that then spilled over into high quality producers in TV and yeah. high quality yep. journalistic investigations that, and like you Philip wanna... Adams, you, you know, is a great example of that, but yeah. like all of the, these industries are connected and like by improving some of the circumstances by making, like if we just funded script writers, like we would get a bunch more better journalism because the whole fucking industry is mm. interconnected. And like, that's a good point. Anyway. If you want a policy suggestion, quota a quota for australian films they've got it in france they have to show cinemas legally have to show 50 percent french movies or something like wow. that maybe it's that, like 25 percent yeah. they make a lot of fucking movies there yeah you know who used to have a quota is mexico and they had to show 50 percent mexican-made films then the u.s got them to abolish it now it's like they make four movies a year or something yeah like yeah. that's probably a slight exaggeration but we've never but, had that here yeah. and you know, we make basically nothing yeah we make, make, yeah. make basically no movies and they're all like about a dog for some reason or a Sad fucking naughty. penguin yeah. and you know i love penguins i love dogs but i also want a little bit more variety in my, penguins and my dogs. diet <laughs> yeah. anyway thank you so much for that tom uh boy that person is really good at speaking into a microphone i wish they had a podcast that mm. i could listen to ah well oh well um guess but okay we got two more all right, uh, next up, we also reached out to Steph, who's a podcaster, who's also, you know, a friend of our show, hangs out in our Discord, comes to my Twitch streams, uh, friend, confidant, member of our Inner Sanctum, uh, colleague, and shitposter. We asked Steph for uh, a potluck, um, and she uh, couldn't record it for reasons that will become apparent in a moment, but they, uh, she did send us a, uh, a script, so I'm going to read that out. 
My name is Steph. I was going to record a potluck, but I've got a herniated disc and, well, I sound like shit. But I figured I couldn't just pass up the chance to talk policy now, could I? I was asked what policy I would implement if I had the power to protect the LGBTIQA community, and look, we could talk about properly funding IVF and adding all gender-affirming treatment to public health. We could talk about raising the rate and more community housing to keep our community safe. We could talk about removing forced sterilization and adding a positive duty to the Sex Discrimination Act. All would be positive steps. But I'd rather talk about the lack of a giant stick to beat politicians with. The lack of a human rights bill at the constitutional level means our rights will always be up for debate, and anything else is just turning it into a sport. The example I give is Roe versus Wade. It was never secured. Unlike what's happening in the US, we have fuck all rights to speak of. A human rights bill that enshrines the right to bodily autonomy and self-determination is the only way forward, not just for our community, but for all communities here in the colony. When we say trans rights are human rights, we mean bodily autonomy is a human right that should be accessible to all. When we say trans women are women or trans men are men, we mean the right to self-determination is a human right that should be accessible to all. Punch a Nazi includes forced birthers, fuck cops, crunch crunch. Huge. Thanks so yeah. much, Steph, for sending us that whilst uh, presumably completely lying down. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's such uh, so many good points in that like quite mm. brief message, but like human rights bill, um, I think is a really good idea. Victoria actually has one, but it's basically legally defunct, as I understand it. And not a lawyer, but like it's basically just kind of like, <laughs> remember that time we came up with a bill of rights? Uh, what a crazy um, but, period. Yeah, but I think it's, uh, you know, America's got a lot of problems, but I think having a, some kind of constitutional bill of rights actually does make quite a lot of sense. Um, I don't have a strong feeling about that. And as always, I'm skeptical about like governmentally enforced caring for each other or whatever um like uh, same as what tom tanaki was talking about like we can't legislate fascism out we have to just have like mm. a, a community built on solidarity who look out for each other mm. but I, I i think that's a really good point and and i also like the translations of those slogans into like everyone deserves bodily autonomy bro like i'm literally a person give me bodily autonomy mm. um and yeah just, actually yeah, that made a lot of sense conceptually not that difficult no yeah Thanks heaps, Steph. Now we've got one more for you. This is from friend, confidant, uh, member of my inner sanctum, Jess, who... Professional Chinese restaurant orderer. <laughs> that is true. That really yeah. made an impact on me. Went to a restaurant. <laughs> he just like knew what we all needed. I, yeah. It just was very uh, impressive. Made it happen for the table. Yeah, Jess is your guy for that, 100%. Jess is also a guy who's like, have played a really big role in like shaping my political perspective over the last couple of years, you know, um, uh, really close friend and someone I often go to, to bounce ideas off for the show. Um, and, uh, we've talked a lot about, uh, the political systems over the years mm -hmm. and Jess, I thought would be a great person to talk about it. Why I sort of hinted in the direction of maybe talking about an electoral system where people were, um, called up by a lottery, like, jury duty rather than uh elections so jess does touch on that but also problematizes it in typical jess fashion bringing uh -huh. nuance and clarity to the conversation uh so i hope you enjoy this from jess as much as i did i think it's a great one to go out on because you know we don't always want to buy into the uh current political structures as they exist and just talk about how best to operate under them we also want to talk about what might lie beyond the scope of what mm -hmm 
where the the political boundaries that have been arbitrarily drawn for us and i think this is um uh this takes us on that journey a little bit so uh place out jess hi snackback i wanted to have a whinge about how crap our electoral system is any electoral system really in general quick word of warning i'm a white dude so you probably should ignore most of what i say single member electorates are shit they're always going to be shit preferential voting just gives us all the fake comfort that we've actually a choice but we're really still in an ineffective two-party system even Canada, with its first-past-the-post single-member electorates, which I don't know which maniac designed that, has more parties than us. So look, it'd be kind of cool if we had multi-member proportional electorates, like they do in all the successful countries around the world. You know, New Zealand, Sweden, Germany, Israel. Yeah, oops. Uh, there's always an exception, isn't there? Uh, P.S. Make sure you go to your NACPA memorials if you're listening to this in time on Sunday. But really, look, it's not just an exception. There's still plenty wrong with all those places too. We don't need to look at the Western world for inspiration here. Now, politician sounds kind of cool. That's where randomly you would choose our government reps out of a hat, and it could be a fun bonus app to do. Uh, Zach, Noon, feel free to do that whenever you would like. But honestly, it makes me feel a little icky that it's mostly just white men who are advocating for it. And personally, I'm not convinced that having an entirely demographic representation in our parliament would even be enough to get us the equity that is needed or that is just. Even if it was enough to make a just society, it's pretty funny thinking about what kind of government would vote to give themselves less power. Honestly, there'd have to be some sort of revolution. But can you imagine a revolution where the vanguard decides to randomly choose names out of a hat to represent us? It'd have to be the widest revolution on record, which is probably why Extinction Rebellion has it as one of their three demands. <laughs> why should we have a revolution just so we can make 97% of our representatives settler colonialists? If we're going to have a revolution, and we certainly should, it's going to have to be something that changes the structure of society completely. We saw during the pandemic just how little our government cares about us. During the same recession, it was the biggest transfer of wealth. This is only going to increase in the coming decades with the climate crisis. And voting is something the proprietarians allow us to do to make us think that we can change who has power. But doesn't. We're tilting at windmills. There's nothing wrong with voting but it's not gonna change anything of substance. Devolve power from the state and give it to our communities. Let us decide what jobs are important. Abolish prisons, abolish the police, open the borders. Now look, everyone else in these potlucks, I'm sure has had great ideas that would make our society so much better than it already is, so much safer and so much healthier in all the ways. Like renowned anarchist Rachel Hunter says, it won't happen overnight and especially not through electoralism, but it will happen. Be gay, do crimes, compost the rich. That's so good. And fucking go in, Jess. Damn. Yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> I really liked that last little bit. It reminds me of a Hebrew psalm, prayer, whatever. Uh, whatever. It means. Um, That's exactly what I was thinking too. Right. It means. Uh, uh, it's not on you to complete the work, but nor are you free to desist from it. Um, mm. That's how it's usually translated. And I really mm. like that because it's like, there's no fucking way we're going to deal with pretty much any of these problems in our lifetimes, I reckon. Um, mm. Like maybe, a, like hopefully climate, because if we don't, then we'll never that's solve it. But pretty bad. And, and like, you know, maybe we'll somehow have a magical, like, 
transformation of our housing sector or whatever. But I think it's pretty fucking unlikely. But we've got to keep working towards it. And, like, you know, it's slow. And we'll find new problems every time we solve one. But, like, we we got to keep yeah. doing some shit, you know. And this, I think, this episode, I think, can stand as testament to the fact that, like, there are so, so many ideas for how to improve our society, ranging from the very immediately doable within the current political context to the complete restructure of our society mm -hmm. and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And there are all different kinds of people working on various problems who could tell you in five minutes how you could fix it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or go a long way to fixing it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a demonstration that, yeah. Like, we know our political system is broken, right? This yeah, is one of yeah. the fundamental... Concepts of the show, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and yet we immerse ourselves in the minutiae of the operation of that system, uh, apparently for fun. Uh, and it is funny sometimes. But yeah. this has been a really nice opportunity to step outside of that box that we have arbitrarily drawn for ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hear from people who, yeah, you know, are not necessarily part of the mainstream, whose ideas are not necessarily something that the mainstream might implement. Although some of them definitely are. Yeah. Yep. And those ideas, and they're, again, very doable. Um, but thank yeah, you all. And like, so I feel really much. good. It's great. After that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know, you, you get to hear what me and Zach think about shit all the time. But these are people who, like, are literally working in these fields or, like, who are directly impacted by them and who live these lives. And, like, mm. we are always so happy and honored to, like, like, holy shit, these people want to, like, tell us what they think and, like, spend their time sharing their thoughts and expertise with us. Like, thank you all it's huge. so much. It's lovely. And it also was just, like, a really nice reminder about the beautiful community that has, like, surrounded this podcast yeah. and and yeah thank you all thank you all for contributing thank you all for the work that you're doing like not on the pod but that you talked about on the pod um yeah and thank you all for listening as well i hope you you know got some stuff out of this that is a bit more meaningful and significant and relevant than the election that i'm sure you're all drowning in um the rest of this next week or two yeah yeah we will come to you with an episode next week that will be election focused um it might also end up being a bit late because of how elections are timed but yeah anyway we'll yeah, yeah they really didn't consult us on time on having the election right in the gap between when we usually record and release episodes yeah, so it's pretty good so, of them honestly aec yeah. slide into the dms we got feedback you really put us in a fucking bind here guys hey, cool. all right anyway Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you again to everybody who contributed to this episode. We love you heaps. Um, thank you to everybody who we hassled uh, and didn't uh, <laughs> yeah, end thank up being you able for to considering it. Yeah. yeah, and like, again, you know, there's so many issues that didn't get covered here. You know, we uh, like people who wanted to contribute but couldn't. So I reckon there's more than enough material to do another one of these down the track. Absolutely, hopefully yeah. We can yeah. uh, cover up some of those gaps. Um, but yeah, that'll probably do us for uh, this week's episode of uh, Oz Pulse Snack Pod. We'll catch you next week for a little bit more uh, uh, political bullshit focused discussion. Yeah, I imagine yeah, yeah. it's going to be the antidote to this like well considered meaningful episode. We'll have <laughs> yeah, all bullshit. Yeah. I felt fucking last time you get one of these wall to wall nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. 
Catch us next week for more fucking bullshit. In the meantime, keep on snacking in the free world. Uh, fuck, um... Ah, oh, wait, you know, everyone who featured in this episode was cool. awesome. Uh, uh, I mean, fuck the cups. Fuck cups. Crunch, fuck, crunch. Fuck the cups. It was right fuck. there. I, yeah. yeah. No free chips for you, you fucking leaners. Yeah. Crunch, crunch my ass. Crunch, crunch, crunch.